Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all on the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. This episode is sponsored by our friends at the NTMA, the National Tooling and Machining Association. The NTMA is an association of privately held, entrepreneurial-based, and family-owned businesses, representing nearly 1,200 small to mid-sized machine shops and tool and die shops across the country. They have approximately 30 very active regional chapters that host local events, run apprenticeship programs, and provide other services to their regional members. As an association of peers, the goal of the NTMA is to help members of the U.S. precision custom manufacturing industry achieve profitable growth and business success in a global economy through networking, workforce development and training, technology, best practices education, advocacy, programs, and services with industry partners. To learn how your company can get involved with the NTMA, including how to join, visit ntma.org. Shazam! This is Jay Jacobs. Welcome to the Job Shop Show. There's a lot of talk about the future of custom part manufacturing, making it accessible to everyone. Our guest today, Will Gibbs, has a vision of that future, and he is actually implementing it. Will is a co-founder of Modica, whose goal is to provide automated micro factory modules with the tagline of factory as a service. He is also the co-founder of a company that makes parts, Harbor Island Waterjet, which is the test bed for Modica. And both of those are located in the Seattle, Washington area. Will has a keen interest in robotics and automation and is willing to modify, and I should say extensively modify, OEM equipment to make them do things that perhaps they were not intended to do, or even do things that the OEM never conceived that they could do. And this resonates with me as a custom manufacturing is still so labor intensive, much of it repetitive and not adding much value, nor is it rewarding to the team members. So if we can easily and inexpensively collect actionable data from existing equipment, we are well on our way to automating our shops. And even if we are not as savvy as Will and can't do it ourselves, I'm still looking forward to learning some of the opportunities out there because these are the paths that the OEMs will be headed in putting features into their own equipment. So what we will be seeing in the future. These solutions are our future. With that, Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Will. Thanks, Jay. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. First of all, I want to ask you about Underground Seattle. And I understand there's a history in how Seattle was created and that it's open to tourists or to anyone. But can you describe what Underground Seattle is? <laughs> well, sure. First of all, it's the, it's the first touristy thing I ever did in Seattle when I moved here 16 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. And it remains one of the touristy things I, I still do recommend to folks who are visiting. Um, but the, the Underground Seattle tour, it's a bit of a uh, dual meaning in the, in the word underground being sort of the, the unseen backstory of Seattle, especially in the early days. But there's a literal part, which is Seattle was originally built sort of at the sea level in the, the tidal lowlands. Mm-hmm. And I, I would guess that every year this happened, but eventually it happened often enough that the, the new fledgling city uh, was flooded as the tides came in and the river levels changed um, that they decided to start building it up. But when they did that, they started building the streets up on basically on stilts and kind of this waffle grid pattern 
and eventually all the building storefronts caught up with that, that grading as it, as it went up the hill. Um, but the original ground level storefronts and entrances and other properties still exist. At least some of them have been preserved. So as you're walking around in the Pioneer Square area underneath your feet, there are sometimes one or two uh, levels of old storefront. And the underground tour takes you through those. And of course, it's augmented with ghost stories and uh, sure. ridiculous tales of the past. But it's a lot of fun. And it's so really do you go down into basements then and inside yeah. some of these buildings? Yeah, you go down to the basements, you walk on what used to be the, the ground level sidewalk, and you'll see kind of fronts of, of buildings that are now sort of these underground, but underground. corridors. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Well, on your LinkedIn profile, you describe yourself as a pan-industrialist. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> well, to be clear, I, I am borrowing that moniker from a, a book that I read that was actually really inspirational to me by Professor... Richard Daveney, um, he wrote this book called The, the Pan-Industrial Revolution, and it's speaking to the, the next wave of uh, what will the, the mega companies of the future be and uh, what will be their qualities. And in the past, we had either hyper-focused companies or we had extreme generalists that got a little um, too generalist. Um, but, mm -hmm. but he sees a future that's a technology-augmented generalist and there are production technologies now additive manufacturing being the main one i think in his view that will uh, allow for a, a whole new wave of big industrial companies or even small industrial companies acting like big ones because they can cross so many different product uh, boundaries and in industrial boundaries due to the flexibility flexibility of new production technologies so i found that really inspiring i'm a generalist myself and uh, as well talk about more with Modica, um, we're really interested in being able to make anything anywhere. And that's as pan-industrialist as it gets. I don't think I've quite lived up to it. It sounds sort of a grand moniker, but I like to use it uh, because it inspires me and I, I think it speaks to where we're headed. Does he talk about how that fits into mass customization? Yeah, that is one of the, the big aspects that, that he touches on uh, in the book and his other articles um you know some of the the values and the the drivers of additive manufacturing are the, the configuration of the product that is specific to one person but then repeated a lot so i i think as a case study um he may have used and i often see this used dental aligners uh, mm. a lot of companies doing that and it's the, it's the kind of ideal thing the product has to be perfectly fit um to an individual and an individual's sort of teeth as they change over time, um, but you need to make a lot of them. They're basically throwaway items now that you get in the mail. So how do you do that? Additive is a perfect, perfect solution for that. There are also, though, opportunities for traditional processes, and it makes me think about, I was reading this morning about someone who designed a house and they actually designed their own furniture within it, and what that meant is they took measurements of their thigh length. So for example, the sofa that they were sitting on was the dimensions were tailored to them specifically, the husband and wife, as opposed to buying something generic. And as you start to make this mass customization more affordable, it's a chicken and egg, I guess, because if there's a lot of demand for mass customization, it does make it more affordable because you create the techniques and the automation to do so. But but that desire, and and that's really where we can go with it, even beyond the perhaps the products that job shops are making, the sheet metal, the machine parts, the plastic parts that are maybe injection mold, maybe created some other way. So furniture, clothing, all this really plays probably into the concept of what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I'm actually very attuned to the, that, that application of uh, mass customization or the ability or the democratization of, of design and production. Um, mm. It seems that I have problem with, with chairs and seats. I just, maybe it's some proportion, you know, in my, in my leg measurements, um, I would love to be able to, um, you know, make the perfect length chairs and, and other things. Um, but I think that's a, that's a good example of people using technology to 
make and uh, use products that don't just fit the, the heuristic kind of average or the, the human factors average over everybody um, and making things that are really well suited to them. And I think getting away from additive specifically, you mentioned you know, sheet metal shops and, and woodworking shops. Um, they all they all come into to play and the tools that are related to mass customization and democratized production really span every kind of process. So if you're making a chair, um, maybe you're 3D printing it, but uh, more likely it's a combination of, of metal and wood. And mm -hmm. um, even if the, the process isn't the, the sort of poster child for mass customization like additive methods are, um, the, the tools and techniques and the way that traditional and other materials are, are produced and handled and how they go through something like a job shop, um, the, the sort of periphery of tools that's making that happen is changing as well. You put together some pieces of, I think, your vision for the factories of the future. Do you actually have a vision statement? Well, the, the short and pithy one is we would, we'd like to be able to enable anyone to make anything anywhere. And that's obviously <laughs> super broad, but it is realistically the, the vision we have. Um, I think you see if you look out over factories and where things are being made, there are hot spots and typically they're, they're big cities or they're places in the middle of nowhere that have, you know, cheap, cheap land. Um, but it's very, things are still very um, kind of, it's, it's more of a constellation with bright spots than kind of a, an overall glow of production capacity. Um, and so we are earnest in this idea of making it uh, easier and more efficient to make virtually anything that you would need um, in more locations, maybe, maybe not literally everywhere. Um, but the, the long-term vision, and um, I think maybe we'll, we'll get to this further in this, in the story, but uh, the long-term vision for Modica is, is also to enable manufacturing uh, in orbit and off world. So we're, we're kind of, Mm. Our, our, our lived lives are, are finally catching up to, to science fiction in a lot of ways. And so we have active uh, experiments and even production technologies um, flying above us right now. And that will continue. As we start establishing private companies or government organizations or otherwise, moon bases and, and Mars bases and, and more floating cities, essentially, um, they need to make stuff, whether they're mm -hmm. bringing resources um, from Earth or capturing asteroids or mining resources on the lunar surface um, sounds wacky, but you got to make stuff and that machinery, you know, you're not going to fly up old school Bridgeport mill. Um, maybe you will, <laughs> probably not, but the, the tools and techniques uh, in those environments need to be uh, extremely resilient. They need to be um, extremely dense and what we'd call volumetrically performative. Mm -hmm. um, and so looking toward that horizon, um, we, we can't really start there. It's, it's far too expensive to start shooting machines into space as a young startup. Um, so we're, we're kind of focusing on the terrestrial aspects of production first. Makes sense. At Rapid, it was a lot of fun to work with the first company who made a 3D printer for space and the company was called Made in Space and Rapid made all the sheet metal parts and some machine parts that were launched into space and then that 3D printer printed the first I guess additive part made in space it was a wrench and that's small but that's where it's going that's where it starts and there's a lot of materials on asteroids or the moon and if we have the equipment up there to mine it and then form it into parts, that's really what people are, are thinking about. But getting back down to the terrestrial, as you say, it, you know, let's, let's, get, let's get back down to earth. Where did this all start? How did this vision come about? Yeah, well, um, really it, it came about from two streams merging. Um, my, my background is, is in mechanical engineering. I, I have a degree in mechanical engineering and um, I've worked in, I'd worked in several industries, but I, I kind of made my way to industrial automation. And in that world, there's a, an, a thing called a systems integrator, which is basically the company you pay to uh, come in and automate your processes. Maybe you're an aerospace company and you need to make plane wings. You hire a systems integrator 
to come in, choose the robots, um, design and make the end effectors, which are the, the kind of the, the most important process tool part, but also just make everything work together. Maybe you have conveyors, you've got tooling coming and going, you've got a bunch of uh, different vendors making different subsystems that need to work together and you need to stitch them together. And doing that work and then spinning out my own, my, my first uh, real company, I guess, was a, was a systems integration firm in um, 2010 to 2015. And in, in that experience, I just, I, I thought that it took too much engineering effort uh, to put all those pieces together. Um, I, I, I felt, I always felt like. Because why did it take so much effort to put them together they didn't talk well, to one another or ex exactly so the the systems don't talk to to one another and they they don't inherently physically interconnect so whether that's mm. electrical connectors or mm. or physical the, the physical sort of mating of, of different pieces of these systems um, and that's because each understandably each big industrial company has chosen their own standards to center on they've, they've maybe come up with their own proprietary connectors and, and dimensions and really the, they haven't considered the interfaces because they each want to be um, their own centers of, of their own universes. And, and I want to just stop you there, Will, because sure. that that's really important because the old way was for an industrial company or many companies to create a proprietary system that others companies couldn't connect to because that allowed you to add more capability, sort of lock down the profit for your company and the software ability to talk to other equipment and other software. That is so important because we had these islands before and yes, they worked well. They added a lot of efficiency perhaps to your process, but in a very discrete way. And now the real jumps in automation are going to be connecting the islands. And you want, you want to just jump yeah. in and throw your thoughts in on that? Absolutely. No, we're, we're, we're of the same mind, Jay. I think the, the kind of the vendor lock-in and the, the walled gardens of the past as they relate to industrial automation, but in other realms related to machinery and production mm -hmm. um, really aren't, aren't going to last much longer. It's one of the first questions uh, we ask when we work with a new a same machine tool vendor or we're, we're planning a system is, um, do you have an API or how do, we, how do we get the data out of the machine? How do we get data into the machine? Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think it'll take a while to, to make the full transition um, away from the, the walled garden mode because there are you know, very large industrial companies um, like, like Siemens, for example, which I love their equipment, but they're, they're becoming more open, but there are um, so many of these sort of mega providers that have uh, so much inertia and mm -hmm. so much, so much uh, of their customer base is really locked into their solution. Um, it's pretty common to hear when we're looking at a new pro pro automation project, when I did this previously, for a, a, a customer to, to say, oh, are we going with you know, this vendor solution or that? Are, are we an ABV house? Are we an Allen Bradley mm -hmm. house? Um, it's, a, it's a common question, and I think it, it shouldn't be. So something that Modica is arcing toward is, is kind of breaking up these walled gardens and recognize them for what they are, is they are centers of excellence and their expertise, and there's obviously mm -hmm. great solutions within them. Um, but we want to, you know, make more granular constellations out of those, those tools. We want them to mix and match a bit more, a bit more easily. And I think it's valuable. I, th I think ultimately... Um, as much innovation as as is happening in any one of those walled gardens or, or vendor spaces, I think it'll be better to have more competition at the device and component level, not necessarily just the total system solution level, which is kind of how they compete now. It's ecosystem against ecosystem, and really it should be uh, device against device. Yeah. I, I like the words you use, the walled garden, and being able to get data out of physical equipment is so much more valuable than perhaps that piece of equipment being 3% more time effective because what you can do with the data will give you much bigger efficiency gains and the ability for some of the machine monitoring 
software that exists out there today to easily connect into all of your equipment is so important. I, I would encourage the listener to go to, what's Modica's website? Could you share that? Sure. It's, it's madebymodica.com. And there's just such great graphics that you folks have put on there showing the concept and where you want to go with the integration of different modules and how they really should fit together. You also have started though a company harbor island water jet which came first and how do they interconnect <laughs> so it is kind of a, a chicken and the egg situation uh modica was formed officially before harbor island water jet was and harbor island water jet um really spun up because uh, my co-founder peter had been operating basically a water jet uh, cutting service and he had a, a small product line um, some sort of wilderness axes and rescue equipment and rock climbing gear. And he had a water jet machine. I had operated a water jet machine um, in high school in my family's business, like a very long time ago. <laughs> um, and so we already had this equipment coming in. And because we are, are scrappy prototypers at Modica, we made a lot of use of that machine, but recognized it had some excess capacity. So in the in the effort to spin up um, some early cash flow, we flipped the switch on the the water jets that we already had, and started selling that extra capacity. Um, that's sort of the nuts and bolts approach to it. We had the machines, we had extra capacity, we needed some cash, um, so why not? And we both had some experience with with doing sort of a job shop approach um, to production. Um, but the, the bigger picture was we saw these water jets as a, kind of a perfect example of not only a, sort of a vendor lock-in space um, mm. where all the consumables for the machine, you know, come from one vendor and the technological solutions to getting data in or out of them were, were pretty limited. Mm -hmm. um, and also these types of machines, the water jets are, um, they're big and they're, they're noisy and they're, they're filthy. They spray water everywhere. They're dirty. They're, they're kind of complicated beasts. And so we saw in them, in line with the, the vision of making machines more, more modular and more deployable, that water jets were a good case study to start with. Um, so we actually ended up putting one of our water jet machines, uh, we containerized it. We do a lot of containerization, literally putting machine tools in shipping containers and other volumetric prefab structures. Um, but it, it, it made its way into what, what is one of our long-term strategies, which is was taking machine tools um, in their OEM state mm -hmm. and doing minimal things to them to make them more deployable, make them more of a water jet in a box mm -hmm. paradigm for our own purposes, to make them more flexible and, and where we put them and when we need to rearrange or move our facilities, but also to demonstrate the broader implications of thinking of machine tools and production technologies more granularly, thinking them of not as big monolithic machines that you have to build buildings around, but as, as ensembles that may be part of a, a whole automated tool chain. There's so many questions I want to get into about how you are taking it from the OEM to the water jet in a box or water jet in a container. But before we get there, a couple questions. Where do you see water jet cutting? Where does water jet cutting really Excel? What types of applications? Sure, that's a great question. Um, the, the thing about water jet is it, it can cut virtually any material. Mm -hmm. um, it's, uh, you know, for, for those who don't know, you know, a water jet cutting machine basically shoots a, a very small 40 thousandths of an inch diameter or, or roughly that size uh, stream of, of water that's coming out at 60,000 psi traveling at Mach 2 plus um, and there's a, a trickle of garnet or sand or some other type of abrasive inside mm -hmm. so it's basically Mach 2 sandpaper <laughs> um, but it, it's super versatile uh, it's part of the reason I love it so much because in a startup environment and in a job shop environment really we are getting inquiries for all kinds of, of, of weird materials and when you look around at the, the scope of cutting tools, 2D cutting tools, um, 
it's a it's a pretty small field. You, you know, you have laser, you have routers or mills, you have various types of saws and, and a few others, and they all none of them can literally cut everything. Um, so water jet was just it, it was the it was the pan industrialist of industrial okay. cutting technology. We found that to be really important. I've used these machines for I mean going on two decades now. And as far as the versatility goes, um, really, they're, they're just indispensable uh, for us. The water jets out of the box, let's say, from the OEM, you weren't satisfied with certain characteristics or attributes of them. So what did you decide that you could make better for your shop? You know, what pain points, headaches did you decide that you could and did want to get rid of sure well jay that's a that's a fairly long list um <laughs> one thing i'll i guess i'll start by saying well, let, let, let's say that you're <laughs> let, let's say i'm a shop owner with maybe not will's experience and and some of the simple ones that you're you just bang your head against the wall and say why didn't the water jet guys fix this or make this easier and something that every shop owner might be able to implement. Exactly. Yeah. So there are a bunch of those things that kind of tying back into mass customization. These machines are designed for the average of, of the, the OEMs customers. And so there are mm. a lot of, there are a lot of things that are sort of where they could be sharper functionality. They're really rounded off because they need to have sort of a mass market appeal or they need to be features that, are asked for by the, the greatest number of customers or perhaps asked for most by the largest customers who are buying the most machines. Um, so you really find a lot of functionalities that, uh, especially in uh, unique environments, uh, don't work quite exactly like you want them to. So one one example is, is getting active machine status out, whether it's uh, the current state of maybe the, the, the e-stop situation or the current volume of garnet um, in the tank. So what is an e-stop? Oh, e-stop is the emergency stop. So it's just the... When you reach a limit? Yeah, when you reach a, a travel limit um, yeah. or some system uh, over, some system overage, uh, mm -hmm. pressure, under okay. pressure, um, or someone is manually hit an e-stop. But um, just just even getting that that signal out there there wasn't a really maybe if we were a huge uh, buyer and we were buying hundreds of these machines the manufacturer would be willing to open up the registers on the plc to tell us where to look uh, but generally there isn't a, a very efficient or, or easy to use api to get this data out um, so again for the non-technical folks registers on a plc can you put that in layman terms? <laughs> sure, that would just be the, I don't know, how do I put it in layman terms? It's a, a PLC, um, you know, it's a, a computer that controls industrial machines or, or in a way, and mm -hmm. registers would be the, the, the addresses, the, the places you look to find the status of maybe a sensor or a control okay. line. Yeah. That, that's good. So those you can, those are typically, they are, Often in a, in a PLC or a industrial control systems, the hardware is something you can tap into. It's a, it's a screw terminal that you can put a wire on and you can monitor it yourself. Um, mm. That's sort of the anti-API. That's, that's more of a break, you know, avoiding your warranty and uh, tapping into signals that the OEM doesn't want you to. Um, they should be exposed. They should be put in a nice data, data package that is streaming out that you can capture. Um, that is starting to happen, but um, just getting basic machine operational data out so that we can monitor uh, something more granular. There's a lot of these, and I mentioned e-stops because uh, there are pieces of the machine that monitor status like the, the garnet. This is the, the, the garnet that gets entrained in the, the high velocity stream. Um, if you run out, then your machine stops cutting and the machine does monitor its own low level. And of course it throws a warning um, but how do you get that warning if you're not standing by the machine? We wanted to be able to have operators moving around the facility and doing other stuff. Um, we have a, a concept we call the, the vigilance factor, 
mm-hmm. for not just our water jets, but all of our machines. And it, it really speaks to how much time the operator needs to literally stand there and watch the part run. And we like to be able to open up that vigilance factor and, and have uh, operators uh, go do more stuff, prep the next job, um, refill the hopper tank or, or deburr and mm-hmm. prep the, the, the parts that have been finished. And getting that data out of the machine is, is helpful um, in maintaining kind of a virtual vigilance. If we can get a, a text message or an email or an alert on the screen that uh, tells us what the machine wants to tell us without standing right at it, that's a huge value for us. I, I like that because what you just said, enabling someone to do something else instead of stand at the machine, that is a, a piece of equipment enabling that gives you so much more efficiency because labor is expensive and skilled labor is hard to find. That if the water jet is, let's say, 10% more efficient, that but it doesn't offer the ability to put out data, it's probably overall less efficient than one that is slower, but gives you the the data signals that you're looking for. So I just want to put that in the context of an owner and don't just look at feeds and speeds and things like that. Data, data, data. (laughs) Drive that into folks' heads. That's so important. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Now you, I think, had referred when we were talking before that is this the SCADA project that you were talking about with your water jet? Yeah, yeah, it would be. So SCADA, um, and for the listeners, that's uh, supervisory control and data acquisition used a lot in the instrumentation world and mm-hmm. industrial systems. It's, it's basically this idea of, of sending and receiving data from a machine that's, that's operating in, in its own way. And particularly on older machines, which, which ours are, we didn't, the water jets that we bought are um, five and 10 years old. You know, they're not mm-hmm. completely recent models. It is getting better just by necessity and, and, and by the, the changing nature of um, the way industrial control systems are working. But particularly for older machines, um, if you want to get some of that data out, you really have to take it upon yourself to, to go find the, the low-level signals and then collect them. And so we started on a project which was introducing our own SCADA to our water jets where we would we have a, a secondary sort of PLC and microcontroller off to the side that's, that's web connected, or at least it's connected to our local um, network connections mm-hmm. um, that monitors all these, these PLC signals that we want. And what are some of the signals that you want to monitor? Yeah. So we, we monitor when the, the, the cutting head or the, you know, to break it down a bit more, there's a pneumatic valve that basically is the, the controller of the, the stream. Um, we monitor when that's actually on and off. We monitor when the machine is actually moving. Um, mm-hmm. We monitor the, the weight of the hopper. We actually added some uh, load cells so we can actually, uh, instead of just getting um, sort of low warning and then empty stop warning, mm-hmm. uh, we know by the minute how many pounds of abrasive we're using. Uh, <laughs> we monitor temperatures at several places. We monitor the temperature of cooling water monitor the temperature of the oil, the hydraulic oil in the intensifier pump, um, and a few other areas, also air pressures. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, the machine will shut down if some of those things exceed set points, but you don't know much about the trends in those. So for some reason, are we, are we, it's been a huge value to see, um, are we seeing air pressure decline over the day? Um, is there mm. something wrong with the compressor? So there's kind of this ex- when we've implemented this data collection and, and visualization uh, for the water jet machines, it's actually expanded our sort of consciousness to uh, upstream and also downstream equipment that is having trouble. But let's see other, other things we've monitored within the machine. Um, well, there is a whole long list of, of sort of machine operational data that we're taking in. Uh, but the other aspect of the, the SCADA system that we uh, it's a, it's bolted on effectively um, is we're able to get input from the operators. So there's a, we've actually implemented a, a keypad by the machine mm-hmm. that the user can kind of clock into. You can then track jobs again at a more granular level than we were ever able to before. We can actually see how many minutes and seconds uh, a particular job took. 
which you can make estimates in the software, but as the machine runs and as the operator may, may pause the job to go to lunch, um, things, different things can happen that aren't captured in the simulation. Uh, right. We now have a complete, you know, second by second view of that. Um, we can track consumables in that way. There's a, there's a key code for the garnet refill. Mm. Previously was someone wrote down on a whiteboard or, or maybe put it in Trello, but now it's, it's really at their fingertips. We'd like to automate that further, but the SCADA system um, as a bolt-on really extended any of the data input and output the machine inherently had. Um, these machines are getting better at that. They're very expensive packages that you can opt for. When you say expensive, how much is this what the OEM would, would offer, but they want to charge you for it? Yeah, in some cases, it's it's eight to ten plus thousand um, dollars, essentially just to get a data stream out. And how much did it cost you guys to do it yourselves? Well, not including the the debugging of the the original code, which is now replicable. The actual hardware that goes on is less than five hundred. Wait, wait, say that again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the. The, the the hardware involved in this implementing this SCADA system, it's all off the shelf mm-hmm. um, PLCs and microcontrollers and, and sensors uh, under $500 for hardware. Um, it did on our side take uh, a little more effort in making this, the software and the, the code that runs the SCADA system. But now that's, that's done and it, it propagates out. So hardware software solution from an OEM is eight, thousand to ten thousand they understand the software the data side they do it once and then they sell it over and over again mm-hmm. this so if someone wanted to contact you who has the same water jet equipment as yourself which brands are you using that you have figured out how to get data in and out of sure well the the SCADA system um it's currently working for, for flow water jet machines. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea is, uh, and this is an important point that again, we want to get away from, from vendor lock-in. So right. uh, we want to be able to currently, we, we, we do just run flow machines. Um, can't knock them. I mean, they're, they're fine, but yeah, we great in the future would, would really like to have a more diverse fleet. And we, as part of this, this larger paradigm with Modica, we'd like that to be easy. So the, the SCADA, the SCADA systems, the production workflow add-ons uh, are not specific to any one, any one vendor. Right. It's just that you've spent the hard work debugging and figuring out the signals that are coming from this particular water jet equipment manufacturer. Right. And I, I think of it in terms of automotive and perhaps not today, but in decades past when people would hop up the cars, it's in a, almost a in a sense, what manufacturers have put into their cars these days, you used to do more manually. And sounds like in a sense, that's what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. At this point, especially for the, the older machines like ours, it is getting in and, and tuning and changing out the engine control modules in, in a way. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a renegade addition to the machine. Um, yeah. yeah. Th- this sounds like a great science project, if you will, perhaps to some owners. Can you quantify, though, why you want to do this, the benefits you're seeing, how you are saving time, money, perhaps getting more machine time per person? Why do you want to do this besides the fact that you like doing this and it's cool? Yeah, well, that's a great question. One of the motivations for trying to get this, all this data out is in Modica's view, which everything is viewed in this context, everything we do at Harbor Island Water Jet is viewed in the context of enabling um, sort of hyperscale manufacturing and more distributed manufacturing. Um, toward that end, we want to collect more data about individual processes and machine tools and really build up a huge understanding of every type of process and machine tool we can. So. Part of it is it's feeding our, our data machine um, for how these machine tools work and how this particular process um, may fit into the, the mosaic of other processes. So we want to see the sort of the, the data we collect from WaterJet 
and how it may interplay with data for a robotic grinding system that the, the next process. Mm. Um, so it, it kind of, it, it feeds this massive database that we're collecting about any process that we can get our hands on. Um, the other aspect is we run the Harbor Island water jet job shop. Of course, there are a few motivations I've mentioned. One is it, it's, it's cash flow for our, our startup. And mm -hmm. uh, we've tuned that. I think we, as a job shop, uh, we really enjoy operating it. And it um, uh, has been a really good experience um, sort of um, perfecting that business in and of itself, thinking of it as just a kind of an old school job shop. But the, the future for something like Harbor Island Water Jet, and the, the way we think of it as a subsidiary is we'd like to enable this future of uh, water jet in a box, uh, a whole water jet business in a box, basically. So um, as someone who wants to spin up a water jet job shop themselves, we want to make that um, a few line items. You, you tick on a, a web form and you get your shipping container or whatever format it's in. And it's everything you need to run the whole business. And a lot of the things that are heuristics that you learn over time operating these machines. So what sounds do they make when they've, when they've run out of, of garnet and, and something's wrong? Or how often do you have to do that? Or what are the indicators that a, that a part is wearing out mm. and needs to be replaced? We want to have that all wrapped up into a system that just tells you on an app. It's just dead simple. Mm -hmm. So... That's another motivation is, is really taking, uh, thinking about the, a water jet job shop operation holistically and then making it really self-contained and, and smart enough that someone who's motivated and interested in um, spinning up water jet capacity, either maybe they're a machine shop. We do a lot of rough cutting for machine shops that then go uh -huh. on to do additional processes. So taking a big block of material and... Um, hollowing out big areas that otherwise you'd have to hog out on a mill or, or another process. A lot of those shops see WaterJet as this kind of filthy, really uh, difficult machine to work with. And if we can make that easier, then we can propagate that technology in our modular way. And mm -hmm. uh, collecting the data helps immensely. Sure. If you're a machine shop and you have either access very quickly to a local water jet company or you bring it in house and you can cut to near net shape, then that means you're spending less spindle time on roughing. So that makes exactly. well, The other thing I'm hearing is that by monitoring all these characteristics of the machine that you are increasing uptime because, or at least you are not subject to downtime at the inopportune time i.e. something breaks and you don't know it was about to break. Whereas if you're monitoring, say, the air pressure and you know the compressor is going to require maintenance, you can schedule that so that it won't impact your operations. And that that's huge for a shop. Exactly. Yeah, it helps us not only be more responsive in the moment. So if something goes wrong, um, we don't have the machine still walking along its path on the part, but there's no abrasive. So it's just etching the surface <laughs> um, for, you know, half an hour or more. Right. Um, so we're responsive in the moment because we can get real time alerts, but also it helps us predict the future a little bit better and, and um, anticipate problems that are coming up before they actually happen. A big part of this is software and you sort of threw out, as an aside, you're looking at something in Trello. I was just speaking with another shop owner on a podcast, and he uses Trello extensively. Could you just share, let's first of all describe what Trello is, why you use it, and maybe how you're using it? Sure. Yeah, I've used Trello for ages. I like to be a beta tester, or I sign up early for things to, to try them. And Trello is one of those that has, has stuck around. And I don't clearly represent them in any way, but it's, it's a great tool that allows you to, to track tasks in kind of a, a, a card-based format. So it's a, it's a very highly visual task management system. And um, you have sort of stages that the task will go through. Um, mm -hmm. so you know, start, middle, and finish. And you actually perform the gesture of, of dragging these cards from, from state to state. And I, I find it very satisfying 
um, to kind of feel you're not just ticking a box, you're actually moving something forward in, in space and time. Um, and again, it's a tool that uh, we use in a lot of different ways, but one is we do use it on the, the shop floor for uh, job tracking. Um, we put all our documentation in there, the, the DXF files and the other files that are um, going from the office to the, the machines mm -hmm. go through Trello currently. What other software tools do you use and like? Sounds like software is such a big part of your business, trying to understand how that all gets integrated with the data you're collecting. Yeah, software is huge. On a daily basis, we do use Trello uh, extensively. We use an application called Notion um, for kind of knowledge tracking, and it's where we write out our procedures and refine our procedures for, for operators and for machine maintenance. It's, it's essentially a, a wiki or a kind of a knowledge share um, sort of Yeah, I, I came tool. across that recently as a alternative to Evernote, but yeah. you're using it in, in a business sense, so that's, that's different. Yeah, yeah. Does it, have, it has good hooks so you can get information in and out of it to these other types of programs? Yeah, yeah, it really does. There's a lot of a lot of ways to, to get data in and out. There's a connection with, with Gmail. There's a connection with, with Slack, which we mm. use for um, kind of daily conversations and questions on our team. You know, another tool, and I know that you know that we brought on that has been a, a huge change is, of course, with job shop operation. One of the biggest pieces is is estimating uh, mm -hmm. and getting getting the quotes out. And when we started doing Harbor Island Water Jet in earnest, we were just using Excel and then a, a Google Sheet mm -hmm. uh, spreadsheet, and it it really got pretty wild. Uh, it was pretty difficult to manage. And we did have some smart connections made uh, over to Trello, at, uh, actually, uh, mm -hmm. to get to data to to transfer back and forth. But um, it was really banging our heads on the tool. So. Uh, earlier this year, we, we did make the transition over to uh, paperless parts in the smart coding system. And really, it's been a, a transformation. It, it has saved us a ton of time. So really happy with, with that, that piece. Um, we'd like to find a way to actually make paperless work with Trello. And we haven't dug into it uh, to make that happen yet. But that's something we're looking forward to doing. Have you looked at taking the API from paperless and connecting it to Trello or? Yeah. Yeah. We have, we have looked at it. We just haven't gone through the steps yet. Gotcha. On the hardware side, what other projects or opportunities do you see beyond the water jets? Well, and this is going back to an earlier part of our conversation about walled gardens and mm -hmm. sort of closed ecosystems and, um, what we see out there in the world is, is a lot of companies making their water jet machines or their 3D printers um, or their CNC mills. Um, there are a lot of centers of expertise, it's companies that have been making machine tools for a very long time that have, uh, they themselves have so much data on those processes and they're making these machines. We really uh, see a future where you're able to think of those machines as not just a standalone monolith that needs to sit on a shop floor somewhere, but as a, a piece or a, an ability within a larger production ensemble um, that you can sort of mix and match together. So, you know, one of our big initiatives we're, we're kicking off on the, the hardware side is uh, we call uh, the system a, a microfab, mm -hmm. um, which is the, the fab part stands for factory automation block. So we're, okay. we're, we're getting into the meat of, of what this vision for Modica is. And, and part of that is working with uh, existing OEMs. We don't want to be creating tools uh, from the ground up. If there's something that's missing in the market, some kind of specific process tool or CNC machine, um, you know, we have the capabilities to maybe address that and make a machine. What we really want to do is lean on these OEMs uh, who already have these great machines and processes and data mm -hmm. to back them and just sort of encapsulate them in a data sense, but in a hardware sense as well, um, in formats that are more inherently interconnectable and, and more readily uh, sharing their, their data back and forth. Um, so you can mix and match these processes a little more than they, they currently are. 
one of the openings though in the hardware space where there really isn't a solution where you, you have come up with one is the easy cutting of walls and containers and can you just share your story of your container bot what yeah, that is definitely uh container bot um well we it's a it's a blessing and a curse on our team to to have a group of people and engineers that are comfortable as in with the, with the SCADA system we added with opening up the control cabinets of machinery and going mm -hmm. at it, tearing it apart, of course, warranties avoided, but we also build our own tools a lot. When we have encountered something in our workflow that uh, has sucked up enough time uh, that we get frustrated with it, um, we just build a machine to handle that, which is handy. So one of the formats that Modica uses, one of the physical uh, formats that we plan around and plan within is, is the standard shipping container. So we work a lot with 20 foot shipping containers. We'll put machinery in the container. We will make a workspace. Maybe you need an outdoor office. Um, mm -hmm. We'll make that. And that's another one of our early cash flow effects. Um, but what we found is that the state of the art in container modification, whether they're, they're, they're new ones or used units, is someone goes out, they mark out a chalk line or the they use a Sharpie to, to draw out shapes and then start cutting the sidewalls with a plasma torch or a sawzall or an angle grinder. And it's loud. It's, it's more dangerous. It's, it's kind of slow and it's a little imprecise. So we decided for our purposes and, and for the Modica containerization purposes, we, we took a water jet cutting head and built our own CNC gantry that latches onto the side of the, the container and actually cuts the cuts the sidewalls based on a digital design you just you upload your your geometry and uh, it cuts through it the water jet of course goes through a container sidewall like butter right right um, it cuts to the inside there's some safety uh, interlocks so you, you can't be inside the container <laughs> um, but it's really it, it's something we created uh, this container bot as we call it as an internal tool to save our own time but as we talked with other uh, folks and producers and container modifiers and retrofitters um, turns out this is a frustration that a lot of them have they want to be able to make more precise cuts without as much heat effect the, the burning mm. shipping container paint is fairly noxious so it's hard mm. to avoid that um, and then the precision that you can grit you can get out of it um, so a case of building internal tool because we needed it and we thought it would be cool and uh, it, it now extends out. We're, we're doing some pilot operations with large-scale container modifying companies. And the idea there is also that at some point, the, the core of our business will not be modifying shipping containers. Uh, it's right. fun and it's interesting right now, and it's important to the, the modular systems that, that Modica is building. Um, but we've sort of created this tool so that we can propagate it out to our vendors who, when we need to place an order for 100 shipping containers that are modified in a certain way. We don't want them wasting time cutting things with sawzalls. Uh, we want them to have this tool uh, when we're ready for them to make stuff for us. So it's kind of preceding uh, our vendors and partners with tools that will save us time in the long run. I love it. That, that's so creative and maybe it'll even help you as a smaller startup with a little more cash flow along the way. Sort of coming to a conclusion or wrapping up our discussion on the integration of the hardware and software with the specific equipment. If there is, let, let's, let's say it's a wire EDM, it's an older wire EDM instead of a water jet. It can be any equipment in a shop. What would you say to a shop owner who doesn't have your background, but would like to try to make these tools more useful. Are there companies out there, you mentioned systems integrators, but they probably are more comfortable working with the newer equipment, but maybe not. How do you do this or even should you do it? Is it worthwhile? Yeah, that's a really good question. And the, the legacy hardware problem is, is really challenging. Um, I mentioned before, we, we don't want to be in a situation where we're creating our own machine tools. And we also don't want to be in a situation where we're forcing companies to replace 
perfectly good equipment to try to get into this new paradigm for mach for machinery. So there's there's a lot of installed equipment that is out of the loop on the on the data front, and without having someone like a systems integrator or another entity or engineers come in and, and tap into the actuators and, and really do it all. It's hard to get the level of data that, that we like to have, but I think there are some strategies you can you can use to start getting a little more data back. And one is using something like Trello or some software that you can put on even a, a tablet that's by the machine mm. and start to get more granular data, even just from the operator. It still may mm. require the operator to click a button, but just start getting some more operational data out of it and get it into software by any means necessary. So when you're changing out a, a blade on a Vansa or maybe the electrodes on an, an EDM machine, um, capture that really in a digital way by any means necessary. That is really the, the smallest step you can take. And it, it can actually be, it can provide pretty profound insights over time. Yeah. So without modifying the machine at all, um, and there are a lot of reasons you may not be able to do that with legacy equipment. Um, of course, it, in some cases, it, if you get too far into it, it may void the warranty. So don't, don't do that. Well, don't break your machines. But I um, think the, the thing with a lot of legacy equipment is the warranty has long ago expired. So yeah, yeah. It's not, you're not at risk for that. Yeah. Um, I would hope that, and this is not something where we are actively working on, but I would hope that in the future, someone in, Maybe we will turn our gaze toward this, but something that I think would be an interesting technology is leveraging even computer vision and you know machine learning techniques for analyzing audio and video streams where you could maybe just set up a camera and a microphone by the machine and you can tell so much from just those and maybe a vibration. Right. And like a just a, a little box that sits there that could actually extract a lot of interesting operational data um, without having to get in and tap into uh, PLCs or the embedded computers or sensors and actuators at a very low level. Um, something like that could be a next step for bringing disconnected machines online in a way. Well, thanks for sharing all that. Way back in my career, I worked for a valve actuator company and essentially we had a PLC it was electric, so embedded in the valves. And I know enough to be dangerous. I understand the signals. It, it sounds really complicated, and sometimes it looks really complicated. But what it comes down to is just electrical signals. And sometimes it's as simple as there's an electric current, and typically it's digital and low voltage, or there's not current. It's an on-off state. So I encourage somebody if you have a piece of equipment you're going to scrap perhaps you just open it up and start playing with it or you let one of these digital natives in your shop have a shot at it and see what they can come up with and, and maybe that's a way to get started in your shop one of the things that i really like about what you're doing is you are quite active on facebook and instagram why are you using those platforms and do you generate business off of them? Yeah. Social media came around uh, at a point in my life where I have kind of adopted it as this way of doing business and the way of kind of communicating outward and, and sharing. Um, so to me and a lot of you know folks on our staff, it's sort of just a natural thing. Actually, social media has been very useful for us. We, of course, run ads on the platforms, but we also just share. And it, I think, has helped spread knowledge. We... We end up getting a lot of inquiries, particularly to the water jet job shop in Harbor Island water jet. Um, a lot of inquiries about water jet. People are, are curious. They can curious if you can cut this, can it cut mm -hmm. that? Um, and so really we have been able to, to kind of spread knowledge through those platforms, which um, hopefully, and it often does come back to us in the form of a job, but I think raising awareness of the, the processes and capabilities and being responsive to people locally has been a huge help for us. Well, it's the way of the future. And what would you say to a shop owner who, how do they get started? Well, I know we've talked about this on a lot of podcasts, but I just want to hammer home that social media content creation is the way that people value your shop these days. How do you get started? What would you yeah, tell folks is valuable for their audience? 
It's it's totally true. Uh, in fact, one of the the ways that I think we stand out is through uh, even people comment on our, our quoting system. Uh, mm -hmm. Paperless pretty often, and uh, we make that pretty smooth. Um, and we have an, a nice website ostensibly. And I think if you're operating a modern shop, um, you just you have to have that stuff. I, I don't see a way going forward of, of being really successful without um, having a, a presence online and a strong social media presence. And really, I'm not a social media expert myself. And it is a little daunting and kind of there's a lot of stuff to figure out. Um, but the way we started is we actually just started getting pictures of parts we made. It's so yeah. simple. You're, you're making these parts anyway. And to the extent you can share them, obviously, right. if it's a... Uh, customer parts don't put itar share. parts out there <laughs> yeah don't do that but uh for for generic stuff for your process tools just take pictures and mm -hmm. get a facebook page and a linkedin page and an instagram page um you can find people that do this for uh, very cheap that are virtually mm -hmm. based um if, if you don't even want to go through those steps but it's so simple you don't have to have a huge marketing plan in place just show people what you do and say a few words I'm, I'm going to throw out along those lines, there's a website service called Fiverr, and I was talking mm -hmm. to another job shop owner, and he wanted to make sure his new website, that there were no typographical errors, grammar errors in it, and Fiverr, the, it started out for $5, you get this, so he put it out there, and for a very low cost. I think it was under a hundred dollars. He had somebody crawl all through his website, give him feedback. So it's not expensive at all. If you had a bunch of pictures to ask someone to create perhaps some titles, some content, post one picture a day for a month type thing. And there's a lot of people out there who want to do that. Yeah, definitely. Fiverr, I would, I would plus one Fiverr. Um, we've used them as well for, for things like that. It's great. Just, tasks um you know it's there's there's a good reputation engine that they have so mm -hmm. you're, you're you know what you're you're getting um that's been a huge help yeah for kind of rote, rote tasks and social media related well it was really great chatting with you today i love how you've just thrown yourself into your passion of creating micro factories i guess fabs factory as a service and you have so many innovative ideas, so many pieces that are in the infancy, but you're starting to put them together. You're, you're, you're thinking really broad, but you're coming up with some concrete point solutions. I'm thinking of all that you shared today. I, I, I've got some applications I'd, I'd love to perhaps talk with you about offline sometime, but this is what makes manufacturing so much fun, that there's still so much opportunity and the vision, where can we take this? Well, we can take it into space. So such an old industry, but so much runway for the future. Any Absolutely. last thoughts for us? Uh, anything else you want to share? Well, I, I will just going off that last piece at a meeting at my company, we did sit down and think about uh, water jets in space and uh, <laughs> sort of comic comically. So, you know, uh, how far uh, is the sci-fi uh, sort of dystopian uh, scenario where you, you've, you've shot a water jet stream and it is just going through the galaxy and finally <laughs> hits a planet and cuts it in half. Uh, I don't think uh, water jet in space, um, you know, it's time has not come yet, but maybe we'll get there. How can people reach you? I'd encourage anybody actually to reach out to me directly. My email is, is will at mmicroindustries.com. Or I'm on LinkedIn, William Gibbs with Modica. Um, I'm a big advocate of, uh, especially if you're running a small shop or you're, you're a startup, um, it really, it takes a community to do that. Mm -hmm. And I would be really happy to share my insights uh, and, and speak with anybody uh, who's working on doing their job shop or doing a startup or, or making parts or really anything. I, I kind of thrive on, on helping connect the dots. So please reach out. Or if you have Water jet parts to cut, obviously. Uh, <laughs> of course. Um, or you need a shipping container turned into a micro factory. Can do that Maybe too. it's your next house. Cut out some <laughs> windows and a door. Could be. Well, thanks for that offer to our audience. Thanks for sharing everything you did today and being such a great guest. It was a lot of fun. 
And for the audience, I'll ask you, what headache is there in your shop that perhaps your legacy equipment doesn't offer a data stream that you could get after, or there's a $10,000 OEM option that with a little effort in your shop, you can do for $500. Are you willing to give it a shot? Are you willing to let someone on your team give it a shot? Again, one of my favorite quotes comes to mind, innovate, automate, or evaporate. If not you, then who? Until next time, keep those spindles turning and those lasers cutting. Have a very innovative day.